0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast at Calvary Chapel of Mercer County enjoy the message we are in Matthew chapter 14 so please turn there in your Bibles if you don't have a Bible we want to make sure you have one they're available right outside the door somebody can bring you one if you just put your hand up Uh, but Matthew chapter 14 is where we are middle of the chapter we didn't make our way through it as I anticipated last week and we've been looking at this desire of Jesus and his disciples. As I've said, they've been running, going from one thing to the next. They were just on this ministry opportunity where all sorts of things were, were taking place through them, the two of them as they would go two by two to these various places. We saw that the religious leaders have now really raised the pressure against them and are coming after them. They've put out these decrees that anyone that's a follower of this Jesus is put out of the synagogue. So the pressure is coming against them. They're even making plans to kill Jesus. And so we've seen all these sorts of things are coming against them. And now Jesus, I think, strategically says, you know what, guys, we need to get away. We just need to take a break. And we need to do that. May I suggest you need to do that every day. Every morning, you need to do that. You need to take that time to get away with the Lord, to kind of ready yourself for the day that is going to be ahead of you. And sometimes we need to take that time where we just need to get up and get out of our lives and go away on a retreat somewhere. And so we emphasize those you see in the bulletin, the women are doing one in the fall. But just that time to be away. That was their plan, to go to the other side, the, the more uh, desolate side, if you will, of the Sea of Galilee and just take a little break. Well, as you know, our plans don't always work out the way that we have planned them. And, and that's what happens in this particular case. If you were with us last week, you know that there were a multitude of people that are kind of hugging the coast of the Sea of Galilee as they're taking a leisurely boat ride through the midst of the Sea of Galilee, the disciples that is, the multitude of people they run around from roughly about nine o'clock on the dial to about one o'clock on the dial and they get there before Jesus and his disciples so that when Jesus and the disciples get out of the boat, there is likely as many as 15,000 people that have pressed up to the edge. Here, let me help you get out of the boat. Let me take your bags. Let me, you know, can I, hey, could you help me with this? I have this little pain back here. And it's like, oh, great, Good, so good to see you. We're so happy that you're here. And I, I suspect that the disciples have a bad attitude like I do. And what I mean by that is I'm, I'm pretty good if I'm playing for it. But if you kind of upset my plans and you kind of change the equation a little bit, that's when I just get a little thrown off and I'm, I'm not so good responding in those situations. Jesus is working on me. And I know some of you are like, yeah, I've been there when you have that bad attitude. <laughs> and You've probably seen it. My wife's like, amen, you know, or whatever. But notice one person that is excited to see them is Jesus. And I know that sounds like a Sunday school class or whatever. Jesus loves All the people, all the people of the world, or whatever. Uh, But Jesus, it says, is excited to see them. Look at verse 14. It said Jesus had compassion on the multitude of people, on them. Back in chapter 9, we saw a very similar example where there was a multitude of people. And back there, it said that Jesus was moved with compassion. And so the multitude of these people, even though it upset the plans that he and the disciples had, the multitude of these people standing there needing something from him moved him into action. It pressed him into action. And so despite this fact that they were there on vacation, the sight of the crowd compelled him. And Jesus and the disciples, they put aside their plans and they begin to minister to the people. And we saw last week that they, he began to heal the sick. It says that he began to teach them right until kind of nightfall or until evening. And then it says that he miraculously fed thousands upon thousands of the people with just five loaves and two fishes. And so that brings us to where we left off last week. By now, hopefully you found uh, Matthew chapter 14. Let me read from verses 22 following uh, up to 27. It says, now immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat And go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray by himself. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now you can imagine that the feeding of the 5,000, this multitude of people had quite an impact on those that were in attendance. And quite frankly, you don't have to imagine because the parallel passage in the book of John, it says this about the response to his feeding the 5,000. It says, when the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. That prophet, that term, the prophet, that they're referring to there, it goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses spoke of a prophet. It says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him that you shall listen to. And that, that term there, a prophet like me, it was commonly accepted by the Jewish people that that was a reference to the Messiah one who would even far surpass the great Moses. So the crowds here in this passage, they're not just saying, wow, that was some miracle. This is neat. What they were saying is that man is the Messiah. It made quite an impact on those that had gathered there. John, in that same passage I mentioned to you, he drives that point home. He continues in the quote by saying, and they wanted to take him by force and make him king. And so in the minds of the multitude, these Jewish people, they had found their king. You can call him the bread king. They had found their king who had come into the world to make their bellies full. I think a lot of Americans are looking for a king like that who would make our bellies full. And the problem is that's not the sort of king that Jesus had come to be. And so as we see back in the Matthew passage in verse 22, it says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, Go on ahead of him, before him to the other side, while he stayed back to dismiss the crowds. Immediately, when the, the rumor starts spreading, he's the prophet. He's let's make him king. Immediately, Jesus says, "Guys, we got to get out of here." And so he said, "It says, I should say, he made the disciples get into the boat." That can be translated. King James does actually translates it as "constrained the disciples." It could be translated, compelled the disciples. It could be translated, and I think it really gives the idea, he, may, he forces them physically with threats to get into the boat. Guys, you got to get in the boat. We're leaving. No, we're not leaving. We're staying right here. This is great. No, get into the boat now. Come here. And he grabs a guy, and he says, you get in there, and you sit there. You know, and he just starts plopping them in the boat, and he puts them because they don't want to leave. And in their mind, the disciples, they don't want to go because, I think, because everything is going great. In their mind, they're thinking, you know what? The religious leaders, they rejected us, but so what? There's thousands of people here that are gathered. They want to make you king. Now's the time, Jesus. Ride that momentum, Jesus. Take it right into the palace, the White House, whatever. And I think a lesser man, you and I, we would have probably buckled. We would have said, yeah, I had these plans about being Messiah, dying on the cross, but you know what? They want to make me king, White House. You know, it's going to be great. And we would have buckled, but Jesus doesn't. On the other hand, he stays focused on the reason that he came. And so he compels, even with physical force, the disciples to get into the boat, and he stays back on the land, and somehow, I don't know how he does this, but somehow he dismisses the crowd. The text doesn't say how he does so, but that he does do so. And then in verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowd, he, came, he does what he came to do. He goes up onto the mountain by himself and he spends some time in prayer. And I pointed out before, we'll point it out again, Jesus longed, even as God in the flesh, he longed for those times to just be alone with the Father, to pray, to meditate on what it is that God was doing and so on. He prioritized those times. And obviously you and I, we need to do so as well. Well, continuing, verse 23, it says, when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, the latter portion of verse 23, the portion I just began reading to you, it starts with the words, when evening came. And I find that interesting because we learned, it was last week, and we may forget, but we learned that it was hours earlier that the disciples approached Jesus to send the crowds away, you remember that? Jesus, you gotta send the crowds away. Why did they wanna send them away? Well, in verse 15, because the day was now over. Notice also in verse 15, Matthew makes it clear, it starts with now when it was evening. And so, if the day was over and it was now evening before the feeding of the 5,000, how is it that the disciples had time to serve dinner, clean up after dinner, get into the boat, and start sailing, and Jesus had time to go up on the mountain all before when evening came. So it seems to me that there's an apparent contradiction there. When did evening come? Did it come before the feeding of the 5,000, or did it come when everything was settled and went up on the mountain to pray? It seems to me as if there is a contradiction, or at least apparently one. Well, on the surface, it might seem that way. But the solution is something that perhaps we're not familiar with and it's a solution that the Jewish culture clues us in on and that is that each day there were two evenings in the Jewish day. The first beginning of evening referred to where, that was referred to at the start of the feeding of the 5,000 would be somewhere around four or five or six o'clock p.m. We might call that quitting time or something at work. The second evening began after the sun had actually set and it was basically dark now which is what we have here. And so the disciples come to Jesus prior to, before the feeding of the 5,000 at that first evening. Now Jesus is up on the mountain praying while they're out on the boat sailing at the beginning of the second evening. No contradiction, probably not the most important information that you ever heard, certainly not gonna help you when you're in traffic and you're frustrated by those drivers that are out there. Does that happen to anybody else or is it me? My wife says, people don't know what you're talking about when you suggest that. I think it's just me. You plug in whatever frustrates you. Knowledge of the fact that there were two evenings is probably not going to help you respond appropriately, but I throw it out there because I think it's important to be confident that apparent contradictions that some will prove, point to as proof of the unreliability of scripture, almost without exception, have a relatively easy explanation. And this is one of those. And so Jesus, he's up on the mountain. It really wasn't a mountain. It was like a big hill. The disciples, they're down uh, in the sea. They're, they're sailing on the sea, which is not even really a sea. It's like a big lake. But nonetheless, Jesus is up on the mountain. They're down in the sea. And notice while they are out there, it says in verse 24, that the wind and the waves begin to beat against them. It says, when evening came, he was there alone. But, by, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them." John describes it as a strong wind that was blowing. Mark says describes the fact that they were making headway painfully. Notice how in verse 25 of the Matthew passage, it points out that they are in the fourth watch of the night. Now the fourth watch of the night, the first watch of the night began at 6 p.m. the previous day, and each watch would last about three hours. So the first watch would be 6 to 9, the second one 9 to 12, and so on. They are now somewhere between the time of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Now, think about that. If they are somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, and they left when the sun went down, which is around the second watch, around 9 p.m. or so, that means that they have been sailing somewhere for, what's the math? Seven or eight hours, six or seven hours. Three hours? One hour? How long, Jay? Six to, nine. six to nine. They've been sailing, my friends, for a long time, somewhere between six and nine hours, and they have only gotten so far as halfway into the water. Now they're men, and if they've gone halfway, we're not going back. We're going to finish this thing, all righty. So they're going to just keep plugging through until they get through. I can't tell you how long I've been lost places, but I am not turning around, because if I turn around, that's admitting defeat, and I will not be defeated by these roads or whatever. We were driving in Croatia. And in Croatia, all the signs are in a different language naturally. And so you have no idea where you're going, what you're doing. You're basically like remembering Boy Scouts. Where's the sun? And it, what time of day is it? And it should be on my right. That means it's east or something or another or whatever. And my wife's like, can't we get help? And I'm like, no help. We will not. I will not fail. Well, anyhow, I think Josh Barber was on that trip with me. And we made it back. We're here. We're safe. See that? Anyhow, these disciples, they're out in the middle of the sea. They're rowing. They have been rowing for six, seven hours. The wind is blowing. The waves are strong. They're not going anywhere anymore. What a day this has been for them an afternoon and evening. Earlier in the afternoon, they're seeing Jesus do the miraculous, creating, if you will, food for the people that are there. Uh, 15,000 or so people now they're in the midst of this crummy sea going nowhere thinking perhaps you know what we might die in this whole process by being capsized and you know it reminds me of this just a simple reality is sometimes ministry and sometimes life can just be that way where you have your highs and you have your lows and oftentimes they come moments after one another and everything could be great and I love Jesus And now I'm not so sure anymore, God, where are you? I don't really like what we're going through. And so it's important for us to remind ourselves of that reality, not to be surprised when those things kind of come our way. Because again, many times when when life's difficulties do come our way, we begin to wonder things like, God, where are you? God, how come you, you didn't? Why aren't you stepping in? And so on. And I think an account like this, it serves as a good reminder for us of this reality that the same God that will calm the storm at the end of this story is the God that put them into the storm at the beginning of the story. And it's the same God, and not lose faith in that reality. We know, if you've been around the faith for any length of time, we know that God can use the storms that come our way in life to accomplish his purposes. And I think if you go through the scriptures and you look at different examples of people that were kind of put through it, had to go through something difficult, a storm, if you want to call it that, there's really two reasons why God allows or even brings storms into our lives. And one of them is for correction. God brings a storm into our life, a difficulty into our lives for correction. And I think the classic example is the book of Jonah. You have a prophet who God said, I want you to go over there to those people and I want you to minister to them. And instead, he says, I don't want to go over there. And he goes over there, the complete opposite direction, some thousand miles away from where it is that God sent him. And God has to bring a storm into his life to correct him, to eventually throw him up on the shores, and he makes his way to the place that God told him to do. Sometimes, storms come our way as a means of correction. And so I'd ask you this, or I'd encourage you in this. If you're going through a storm right now, a difficulty, a challenge, the place to start is to take the opportunity to search out your heart. I say, all right, Lord, have you brought this into my life as a means of correction? Is there sin in my life? Is there rebellion in my life? Is that why I'm here so you could get my attention? Sometimes that's what God is trying to accomplish. But there are other reasons, other times that God sends us into a storm that has nothing to do with sin or rebellion. And so it's important to note because some would speak otherwise. You remember the book of Job when his friends came and basically accused him of how unrighteous he was, and that's why he was going through the things that he was going through. Sometimes we go through things that have nothing to do with sin or rebellion, as Job did. Sometimes storms come into our lives not as a means of correction, but as a means of perfection, where God is doing a work, and he wants to refine us, and he's going to use the storm to do so. And this present storm that the disciples are dealing with is one such example. Remember, they're in that boat because of obedience to what Jesus told them to do. Remember, Jesus physically put them in that boat in some cases, it seems. And some of us are dealing with challenges at work or with our neighbors or with family members for no other reason than our attempt to be obedient to God's leading. And that's not a matter for correction, but it's something that God is going to use. God can use those storms as well as a means of perfection. Storms that serve the purpose of God refining us, or teaching us, or actually growing us. And Paul explains it this way in Romans chapter 5 when he talks about suffering. He said, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Amen? Come on, that, that wasn't heartfelt. All righty, I, I'm with you. I'm right there. Not always. No, no. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character and character produces hope. You see that there? Suffering produces character. It's the refining process that God can use in our lives to bring us to the place that he would have us to be. And many things are learned in our lives in the midst of a storm that cannot be learned any other way. And so if you find yourself today going through a storm and you've searched out your heart and you know there's no sin, there's no rebellion, I'm trying to do what God is telling me to do, and if honestly, honesty you can say that, then the next thing to pray to the Lord or ask the Lord is this, all right, Lord, then what refining work do you want to do? What are those edges that you want to kind of refine? I don't know, what's it? Smooth out? Clean up? Well, back to the story here. It likely was not stormy when these guys set sail. I suspect if it was, the fishermen of them said, Lord, The storm will be gone in a couple hours. Can we wait a few hours? You know, let's talk about this or whatever. It likely was not stormy when they said sail. It's almost certain that the seas were peaceful. And I've pointed out to you previously that it's not uncommon because of the topography of the land that surrounds the Sea of Galilee. You have... Mountains, hills that go pretty much all the way around it with just sort of openings at the top part, maybe around 11 o'clock. There's an opening in the mountains in the high places there and then again at the bottom. And so what happens is wind blows into that area and it's just funneled right through that opening of the high places there and it goes right on the sea and the storms can come out of nowhere. And so these disciples likely got in their boat when everything seemed lovely, but very quickly the waters became rough and they became tempestuous, and this was a serious situation that they were going through. So if you were thinking, well, whose bright idea was it to get in a boat when there was a storm? Remind yourself, it was Jesus' bright idea, and so if you've got a problem, bring it up with him. But, and secondly, is it probably wasn't a storm when they first got into the boat. Now, if this text is new to you, you're not familiar with what I read in verses 22 to 27, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, you're focusing on whether storms come or don't come, and should they have been in a boat or not? Shouldn't you be focusing on that phrase there in verse 25 where it says, He came to them walking on the sea? Doesn't that seem a little more significant as to whether it was a good idea to get a boat or not? But that he came to them walking on the sea. And so, yes, I agree, that is highly unusual. And so we're going to take some time we want to consider that today. There are some that will suggest that because basically they believe that there are really no miracles in the Bible or anywhere else. Thomas Jefferson, he took his Bible... And he took out every miracle in the Bible, because God doesn't work that way. Thomas Jefferson kind of hung around with the idea of deism, where God kind of puts things into motion and then kind of pulls back. And so he didn't really believe in this idea of a supernatural interaction, the miraculous taking place. And so he created his own little Bible. Um, I guess you could do that if you want to. It didn't seem wise to me. Uh, But nonetheless, there are some that would suggest that Jesus is walking here on the water isn't what you're thinking when you think about walking on the water. Because people can't walk on the water. But really what happened is the disciples are getting close to the edge, and Jesus is really just at the water's edge. So he's walking on the sand, and it kind of appears like he's walking on the water. That's what they would suggest to you. But can I remind you of a couple things? Number one, they are about three or four miles away from land. They're not at the water's edge here. Secondly, as it said, they had been making headway Painfully, which means they're out there in the middle, but they're not advancing. Thirdly, it's, we discover we did the math, they had been rowing, somewhere, uh, rowing for somewhere around nine hours. These guys are not at the water's edge, but they're out in the middle of the lake. We haven't read this yet, but down in verse 30, it tells us that Peter is going to get out of the boat and get on the water as well, and then he's going to begin to sink. Now, the only way that Peter can get out on the water and begin to sink is if he's in water deep enough to sink in. And if he's on the water's edge, as some would suggest, then, you know, unless he's rolling around on the ground or holding his head under the water, then he can't be sinking or that word could be translated drowning. And so it doesn't make any sense based on the context of the words that are given to us that he could, they could be uh, on the water's edge. They're out there in the middle of the deep. And so it's not a trick, it's a miracle, where Jesus demonstrates to his disciples that he is even Lord, even over the laws of nature. You should note this, that the Sea of Galilee uh, has an average depth of 85 feet in in the deep place, not on the, the edge, obviously. And there are some parts of the Sea of Galilee that are as deep as 140 feet deep. 85 feet, 140 feet deep, I think basically over 12 feet. Is beyond any of us, and we'll drown out there eventually. But 85 feet, 140 feet deep—that's crazy deep. Human beings do not walk on top of 85 feet of water. And the disciples know that truth. Now, rather than concluding, "Wow, another miracle! This is awesome!" Somebody write this down. You know, we'll, we'll put this in a story here. Rather, they conclude, as it says in verse 26, it says that they were terrified when they saw him walking on the sea, and they said, "It's a ghost." and they cried out in fear well that's predictable that they would cry out in fear if it was indeed a ghost wouldn't you now if Jesus were mean or a jokester he might be tempted to say boo or something like that to them which I think would be kinda humorous but in reality he decides to keep this one serious and so he says to them take heart it is I do not be afraid I guess that works as well as boo as an option but he says to them take heart it is I do not be afraid I'm not a ghost Now, they're terrified, and Jesus tells them to not be terrified, as if it were that simple. Are you worried about finances? Don't be. Okay. (laughs) Are you fearful for your children's future? Stop that. Do you feel inadequate in your efforts to share your faith with others? Well, don't feel that way anymore. Uh, Yeah, it doesn't work that way. You know, you just tell me to stop that or don't feel that way anymore, or to move on, whatever. But it's important to note that Jesus doesn't just tell them to stop feeling an emotion. So they're terrified, and he doesn't just say, well, stop being terrified. But notice, he explains to them why that fear is no longer a reasonable emotion. And it says there in verse 27, he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He says, I'm not a ghost, I'm Jesus. I was just with you a few hours ago before you set sail now I do believe that some of the fears that we experience in life are very rational students you show up in class and you haven't studied at all for that exam and the teacher says we're having an exam it's very rational to be very fearful in that particular moment some fears make sense the problem is that many fears that we entertain and the fears that we allow to paralyze us I'm not stepping out of this boat for instance The fears that we allow to paralyze us are totally irrational. Again, it's been said 90% of the things that we worry about happening never come to pass. And yet we let fear of what might keep us, uh, we let fear keep us from engaging in what God might have us to engage in. Jesus says, I'm not a ghost. He says, I'm Jesus. Now Peter, he says essentially this, Oh yeah, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. Now, rereading that this week, I couldn't help but think that as soon as Peter said that, he thought to himself, what am I, nuts? Why would I say that? Or whatever. And I'm quite certain the disciples looked at him and said, what are you, nuts? Uh, To him, Peter declared, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Notice that key word there, the first or the second word there. He says, if. If it's you. Now, Jesus could have looked at that if and criticized Peter. He could have said, if, after all that I have done these last couple of years, all of the miracles that I have done, you've been with me, I let you be one of my disciples, you would say if. But instead of kind of critiquing that if, Jesus instead sees that if, that little seed of faith, and it's as if Jesus says, you know, I can work with that. Peter says essentially this. He says, Lord, the simplest way for us to verify that it is you is for you to enable me, us, to do that which is impossible for us to do. Lord, if it's you, command me to come out there. He says, maybe it's you, maybe it's not, but there's one way we could find out. Have me come out there and do the impossible. Well, that's faith. It may not be a lot of faith, but it's faith nonetheless. It's a confidence in who Jesus is and what Jesus is able to do. And so he asked Jesus to do that. And the Lord responds, and he says one word. He says, come. Now, if I were Peter, I'm thinking, oh, boy, now what am I going to do? You know, I just kind of laid it out there. Now i got to take that step that he's invited me to take. And Jesus has invited Peter to take the biggest step of faith in his entire life. And the question really is, will he do it? Would you do it? Will he do it? Would you do it? See, it's one thing for Peter Back when we saw a little bit earlier in Matthew, when he left the fishing nets at the side of the sea, Jesus called and said, come, you know, I'll make your fishers of men. And it's one thing for Peter to leave the nets at the side of the sea because he knows where they are and he can always go back to them. But this is another matter altogether. And Jesus is calling him to take a step of faith out of a comfortable, safe boat onto the tempestuous waters. Hurricane type waves. Not a good idea. Same people don't go swimming in the midst of a hurricane. They don't do it. And this step could very well be Peter's last step. I said earlier that sometimes storms come our way as a means of correction, and other times they come our way as means of perfection. This is one of those instances. Earlier, I mentioned to you in our study of the book of Matthew that a disciple was a learner. And when it talks about Jesus having disciples, uh, John the Baptist having disciples, these are people that left everything to go and be with him, them, Jesus, John, whomever it may be, and to go wherever they go. And the whole idea was, hey, look, I could sit here and give you like a weekend lecture, but you'll learn a whole lot more. Just come with me, and when I encounter certain things, I'll explain them to you, and you can learn almost like an apprentice would do with a worker or something like that. And they, that teacher would look for teachable moments when they arise. This moment here in Peter's life is one such teachable moment. Out there in the midst of the sea, in the midst of a raging storm, Jesus sees a teachable moment for each one of his disciples and particularly for Peter. And so he says to Peter, I want you to come out on the water with me. And again, oh boy, what would Peter do now? Well, the text tells us, verse 29, that Peter does what 11 other guys in the boat do not do. He gets out of the boat, and he walks on the water out to Jesus. Peter does what no other human being in the history of the world, except for the incarnate Christ, as far as we know, has done. And that is in response to Jesus's command, he gets out of the boat, and he walks on the midst of the Sea of Galilee. He walks on the water. And I think there's a lesson for us here in this example of Peter. That Jesus' invitation to Peter is an invitation to every one of us that wants to experience more of the power and the presence of God in our lives. Jesus' invitation to Peter to step out in faith and to walk on the water is an invitation to every one of us as well to step out in faith in our lives. And by application this morning, I think water walking can be a picture of doing that which you can only do with God's help. And without his help, it could never actually be done. Now you might look at that and say, well, I'm no Peter. I don't have that kind of faith. I don't have enough faith to step out of a comfortable boat onto the midst of some water like that. And I would say this, if you're thinking that way, may I I just remind you that Peter wasn't abounding in faith when he gets out of the water. As a matter of fact, he's basically doubting. If it's you, I'm not quite sure if it's you. He's got a little bit of faith, a little nugget of faith, And so the lesson that Jesus has for Peter to learn, for you and I to learn, for the disciples to learn, is that he can use that little bit of faith to accomplish even the impossible, that all that Peter has to do is step out in that faith. And should it really be any different for you and I here, even though we're 2,000 years later? No, thank you, Natasha, one person. All right, no, it shouldn't be any different for us. That little bit of faith is what we step out in faith on. Now, some of you say, well, I'm not sure I can do that. That makes me uncomfortable. In fact, it scares me a bit. I'll be honest, it scares me a bit. You don't think Peter was scared in this? I'm sure he was. And can I suggest this, that every step of faith is designed by God to make you feel uncomfortable or even downright scared. Because we're stepping out into the unknown, and of course, that uncertainty is, is going to make us feel uncomfortable. Stepping out in faith upon the unstable waters is always going to require that we take a risk of some f- sorts. And if you, again, if you kind of let your mind just run through the scripture, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've read the Bible and things like that, or you've been kind of studying it or whatever in church and, and stuff like that, just kind of let your mind go through different characters in the scriptures. And what you'll begin to discover is that there is a pattern that we see of those that God calls in the Scriptures. So whether it's Abraham, or Moses, or Ruth, or Esther, or one of the prophets there in the midst of your Bible, or Joseph, or Peter, or the rich young ruler, or the Apostle Paul, there's always a pattern in their lives. And the pattern is this. First, there is a call in their lives. There's an invitation that God gives A call where God asks an ordinary person to do an extra ordinary thing. First, there's always a call. Second part of the pattern is there is always fear. You look at every one of those guys that I mentioned to you and the others that are there as well. There's always fear. The normal order of things is fear. It's for God to call people to do that which quite naturally they are afraid to do. Moses was afraid to go to Pharaoh. Esther was afraid to go before the king. Joshua had to be told again and again and again to be strong and of good courage. Both Mary and Joseph, in the opening stories of the New Testament, were told be not afraid and do not fear, respectively. If it's a God-sized call, then you can be sure it's going to cause you fear and apprehension. But here's the next thing to notice in the pattern. So you have the call, you have the response of fear. You always have in the pattern reassurance from God. There's always God promising his presence to you. I know it's fearful, but I'll be with you, he says. Every single time, I'll be with you. Repeatedly, he says in the scripture. And not only that, he always promises to give us what we need to fulfill his calling. And so you have his call, our fear, his reassurance. Now the ball's back in our court, if you will. And the fourth pattern we see is there's always a decision That we need to make he's not going to make it for you he's not going to force you to do it there's always a decision that we need to make every time god calls he leaves it with the person to either say yes or to say no to say yes and despite the fear to trust the lord to enable them to do that which is impossible for them to do or to say no and say god i'm comfortable here and i don't want to step out in faith but he leaves the decision with the person and then finally There is always a changed life in the patterns we look at. There's always a changed life, and and you need to know this. Whether you say yes or no, your life will be changed one way or the other. Those who say yes to God's call learn. Those who say yes to God's call, they grow, and even if they fail. But those who say no become a little harder, a little more resistant to God's calling, and a little more likely to say no the next time. So perhaps you're thinking, well, you know, that seems like high-level Christianity to me. That seems like graduate-level Christianity. I'm back here in freshman-level Christianity. Well, may I suggest this to you? The only way that we advance forward in our faith is to step out of the safety and the perceived security of the boat when God calls us to do so and out onto unstable waters. Let me throw some examples at you that God might be calling you to. Perhaps the Lord might be just impressing on your heart. You know what I want from you? I want you to unashamedly say a prayer every time before you eat, even if you're in a public setting. That call to faith, to to respond, might be a freshman-level step of faith, but that's what God's calling you to do, and you should do it. Maybe he's calling you to speak a word of truth into a situation, even though you know most of the people present probably won't agree with what it is you have to say. That's a step of faith. He may be calling you to take a stand, even if that might cost you some popularity or perhaps even cost you your job. You may be called to leave a job or to take a new one. Some of us may be asked to accept a promotion, and that's our step of faith. I have a friend who went into his boss and requested a demotion because prior to getting the promotion and being the boss, when he was down here, he shared his faith with everyone. Now that he was up here, he wasn't allowed to share his faith with people anymore. So we went into the boss and said, I'd like a demotion, please, to back where I was before so I can tell more people about Jesus again and not violate some rule or whatever it may be. That was a step of faith in his life. Maybe God's calling you to get involved in a ministry or to start up a ministry effort. Maybe God's calling you to break off a relationship or maybe start a new one with someone that you are fearful of engaging. Maybe God's calling you to pursue someone and seek forgiveness. Maybe he's calling you to give forgiveness. You see, the point that I'm trying to make, walking with Jesus will regularly require that we leave, if you will, the comfort of the boat and get ourselves out on the stormy waters. And that requires that we take some risks in our walk with the Lord. So if Jesus leads and then he says, come, the obedient response is to come, to respond in obedience and do that which he is telling you to do. And so, this account here of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water, it's not just an account about risk taking. This isn't just about, you know, like X games, and Peter would have been good, you know, if he were in it because he's willing to do crazy stuff. It's about discipleship. And, you know, some would call it extreme discipleship, but really that's a bad phrase because discipleship is discipleship. It's I go where you tell me to go. And so, this story is really about discipleship. Will you go? Wherever it is that Jesus asks you to go, and will you do whatever it is that Jesus asking, is asking you to do? And sometime in the coming week, or perhaps the coming month, certainly sometime in the coming year, each one of us is going to find ourselves sitting comfortably inside of a supposedly safe and secure boat when suddenly Jesus is going to come strolling by our lives, and he's going to say, come. And what I've tried to do this morning is provide a whole bunch of different examples that the Lord might be calling each of us to. But the reality is I don't know where each of us is with the Lord and what God is doing in each of our individual lives. And God might be calling you to do something completely off my radar screen. And maybe I didn't mention it, and you're thinking, well, he mentioned work, and he mentioned this thing and that thing, but he didn't say anything about that, so I'm good to go. Please don't walk away thinking that. Here's how... You can figure out real fast what God might be calling you to do. What's your boat, so to speak, that you just love it so much, it's comfortable, it's safe in that. And that is this. What is it in your life that you would be scared to death to give up if God called you to do so? What is it in your life that you would be scared to death to give up if God called you to do so? Your boat is whatever represents safety and security to you apart from God himself. Your boat... Is whatever keeps you so comfortable that you don't want to give it up even if it's keeping you from joining Jesus on the waves. So Jesus is out here and he's saying, hey, I'd love to spend some time with you. Come out here. You're like, Lord, I'd love to spend time with you, but I'm quite comfortable over here in my boat. I'm not getting out of this boat. You're more than welcome to come in, Jesus, if you'd like to. He says, I'm out here. Jesus is out on the water and he's saying, come. And you can either go out there with him or you can stay in the boat without him. And your decision represents what you value more. And I think a lot of times we're a lot like Peter. We want to be with Jesus, but it's scary. We're not quite sure our faith is big enough to step out of the water. Peter does. And that's what Jesus is calling each of us to do. We might say, Jesus, can't you just make it sweet and easy and wonderful for me? Can't you just have me step out into something warm and inviting and lovely? And he could do that, certainly but would that really grow us as he desires it to? Jesus is calling Peter out into the water as a means of growing the little bit of faith that Peter does have. And again, I think we're a lot like Peter. We have a level of faith, but oftentimes we think we don't have enough faith to step out. And you don't need enough faith. You just need a little teeny bit of faith and step out in that and let God do what God is going to do. The only way that Peter is ever going to learn is through the exercising of his faith. It's, if you will, exercising his faith muscles that will actually build up his faith muscles. And each time you get out of the boat, you become a little more likely to get out the next time. Now, I want to make this point here. So Peter gets out of the boat. Look at verse 30. It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. You might get out of the boat, and you know what? You might fail. Peter does in verse 30, but actually let me rephrase it. Does re- Peter really fail here? Peter walked on water. Now, it was five or ten seconds, I imagine, but let me ask you how long did James walk on the water? Or John, or Andrew, or any of the other disciples? How long did they walk on the water? The answer is zero seconds. And so, yeah, Peter may have sunk, but did he really fail? He was the only one who can say, I walked on water. Pretty remarkable. Peter accomplished what was physically impossible for him to accomplish, and he did so as a result of his obedient response to Jesus' command. And in doing all of that, he learned some valuable things about himself and the Lord. And I think this is important. Other disciples, you and I in this room, but the other disciples sitting in the boat learned some valuable things about ourselves and the Lord. Peter learned, the disciples learned, we can learn that Jesus can be trusted that Jesus would enable Peter to do what in and of himself was impossible for him to do. He also learned that Jesus would be there to save him in the event his faith wavered. And if you look at verse 31, it says Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? No judgment, no scolding, no abandonment, no reasoning in Jesus's mind, The average human could stay underwater for 30 seconds before drowning. I'm going to let him suffer a little so he can deal with this. He immediately reaches out his hand, and he pulls him out of the water. And Peter learns that lesson, that the Lord can be trusted, and I can step out. And even if I fail in my effort, he'll be there. I think that's very valuable and important to learn. Peter also learns in verses 29 and 30, what could be accomplished if he kept his eyes on Jesus. There in the verse it says, Peter got out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Notice that phrase there, but when he saw the wind. Now, the wind had been blowing for the last four or five hours. The wind wasn't something new to the equation. The change was that Peter was now taking notice of the wind, and he was no longer fixing his eyes on the Lord. And in doing so, his faith began to waver. And certainly, it's unfortunate that his faith wavered. But can I suggest it's also a blessing that his faith wavers here? And the reason I say that is because he would have never known had he not taken the initial step of faith. He learned a valuable lesson about the Lord, even in his so-called failure. Jesus could have told him, you need to keep your eyes fixed on me. And I'm sure he did. And Peter could have acknowledged that that was a good idea, but had he really learned that lesson until he had to go through it or he had the opportunity to do so. It's the experience that's going to teach Peter the reality of the truth that Jesus presented. And if only he had kept his eyes on Christ, Peter could have walked all the way to the shore, no doubt. But he let his eyes get caught on something else, on the wind, on the struggle. And finally, the lesson I think we see here, and I'm ending soon, don't worry. Peter and all the other disciples, they learned something new about Jesus here. And in, it's an obedient response to Jesus' call, Peter's step of faith in obedience to that, that they learned something new about the Lord that they had not known before. And, and I think this is really important. It's not just Peter that learns this lesson. It's all the disciples that are observing this. So when you take a step of faith, you're building up other people's faith as well. That's why we sell in the bookstore some of the biographies of, you know, some of the great men and women of the faith is because they took these steps of faith. Read their books. It'll encourage you in your faith as well. Well, what did they learn new about the Lord? Notice what it says there in verse 33. Those in the boat worship Jesus saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now we know that they already knew that. They had made statements like that before. But here, I think it's emphasized with that word truly. This experience forever impacted Peter and all of those that were observing Peter. So, Peter's experience with Jesus and the way in which he enabled Peter and preserved Peter told these guys something about the Lord that they hadn't really learned before. And it led them to worship him. Take steps of faith, observe others that are taking steps of faith, and the Lord will build all of our faiths up. Now, last point, some will say, the Bible doesn't say anything. Apparently, it's a, either a high-pitched young man or a lady. Uh, <laughs> the Bible doesn't say anything about the disciples worshiping Jesus as God, some will say. Well, turn them to this passage where it says, those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God, okay, as a defense of your faith. Well, that's the end of our time together. Uh, Next week, we're going to celebrate communion together, so it should be a good time, extended worship, uh, a meditation in the scripture, and we'll celebrate communion, but let's pray together as we close out our time today. Father, we are indeed uh, challenged by this example. Lord, I think of uh, the scripture that talks about Elijah being a man like us, and he prayed, and and the things that happened, and Lord, as we look at this example, Peter is a man just like us. Lord, uh, ups and downs, uh, some great feats in the faith and other examples where uh, the faith wavers. And and so, Father, I'm just asking for us that you would really challenge us today. And Lord, we don't have to go quit our jobs or whatever, but when you call us, that we would be ready to step out, even if it's in those small things like bowing our head and saying a prayer, and that we would be people that are quick to listen to what you might be leading us, how you might be leading us, and Lord, even if it's uh, it seems foolish to do so, that we would step out in obedience to your leading. Father, I pray as a body of believers, Lord, that we would mutually encourage one another to run the race well, and with endurance. And Lord, as a church, when one of us is uh, struggling. Lord, that others would come alongside and sort of put their arm under their arm and just sort of uh, bring them along the process, and Lord, together we would make the way, Lord, uh, ultimately to our home in heaven. So bless our, our fellowship. Unite our hearts. Knit us together as one body of believers, a family of believers. And be glorified in the lives we're seeking to live, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.